Theology Gals, episode 21, Sanctification with Gary Edwards. Knowing what you believe and why you believe it lies at the very heart of Christian experience, worship, and everyday living. The Bible's not about you. You're not David. Trouble in life is not Goliath. Jesus is going to be David in the shadow. Goliath is going to be sin and death. Who's that make you? Uh, and it doesn't make you the Israelites in the corner going, he's going to kill all of us. That's exactly who you are. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it. It is fatal, fatal for us to think that we can ever move on from the gospel. The great problem in the evangelical church today where the scripture is concerned is not the inerrancy of the Bible. The great problem in the evangelical church today is the sufficiency of scripture. We don't think it's sufficient to do what we have to do. So we have to wake up what's happening and recognize that the problem really is our lack of theology. Hi and welcome to Theology Gals. Thanks for joining us. We have a really special guest and a really important topic today and with us we have Gary Edwards. And Gary, just before we get into our topic, could you just maybe tell people who you are, what your background is, and and I should say, Gary is joining us from Ireland. You'll probably hear that in his accent. Yeah. Well, um, my name is Gary Edwards, and uh, uh, what way would I describe myself? Um, suppose I'm uh, on sabbatical at the moment in relation to ministry, and uh, my vocation as such is as a process engineer. But I'm currently transition transitioning into a new position. So um, over the last year, I've sort of been burning the, the candle at both ends. So I've taken a sabbatical um, just to reevaluate a few things. But um, my background really is as a teaching elder uh, in a Grace Church in New Ross. I was involved in planting two churches um, along with Miles McKee and uh, Dr. John Fomble of Paramount Church in, in Jacksonville, Florida. And um, my background um, started off initially in the charismatic church, sort of Pentecostal. And um, although I adhered to the five points of Calvinism, I was um, very immature in the faith and really um, was being rushed forward into leadership roles, more so because of my ability to talk <laughs> and, and uh, my personality. But um, to be honest, um, within a very short space of time, I was puffed up and, and ultimately led me to despair and, and questioning my faith. And, and I ended up in a, a state of, of um, deep hurt and pain. Um, so the only way I could describe it. And that's when I actually came to understand the gospel. And I started reading reformed writers, likes of John Murray. And uh, John Murray was very pivotal. pivotal in my understanding of reformed doctrines at an early stage. And um, then I came across Miles McKee and um, basically uh, started to work with Miles 
and then came under the mentorship of John Fonville. And over a period of 13 years, as starting out as a charismatic, I am now a um, reformed, confidential, confessional Presbyterian. But uh, unfortunately, in Ireland, we don't have too many of those churches. Um, so um, I, that's would explain a little bit to do with my sabbatical as well, as my doctrines have been maturing. Um, but I'm also um, talking with a few people at the minute at the concept of planting another church, but a reformed Presbyterian confessional church in Ireland. Oh, that's that's exciting and something we can be praying for you about. Well, we're going to be talking about sanctification today because I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about sanctification and what sanctification is. But before we talk about sanctification, I think we need to talk about justification. Can you just first describe what is justification? Because I don't, we can't get to sanctification before we talk about justification first. Indeed. Um, well, justification, I think the best way um, I have heard it described um, is just as if I've never sinned. And literally, um, we are sinners and we are uh, totally depraved and we've fallen from God. And um, basically, we needed a mediator to stand in our place and represent us before God. But how could that happen? And uh, so we get to see in the Genesis narrative, the fall of Adam and Eve, we get to see then the covenant of grace being established with the pronunciation of the gospel and, you know, for the serpent crusher, which is Christ. So then we get to see then the whole way through the Old Testament, this uh, covenantial language of, uh, of a covenant of grace um, where God says what he will do and that he will call the people on to himself and that he will sanctify them, he will justify them and so forth. He will give them new hearts. But then we also get to see then a covenant of works in relation to, uh, to showcase, you know, God's law, moral character, our fall, and to reveal to us, you know, our inabilities and uh, ultimately to all shadow and point forward to Christ. So when Christ comes, then um, we get to see that through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, which we call the gospel in accordance with 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, we see that Jesus um, accomplishes a redemption for his people. So this accomplished redemption basically was by Christ's active and passive obedience. So Christ had to actively sit under the law in which we broke, and he had to fulfill it and fulfill all righteousness but then also then, the, that's the active obedience. And the passive obedience is in respect to Christ's penal substitutionary death because, because blood was shed because of sin. Um, a sacrifice had to be made. A, a, a lamb without blemish had to be offered. A sinless sacrifice in order to atone for man's sin. So Christ, through his uh, penal substitutionary death, satisfied this wrath of the father who said that basically we would die for our sins so in a nutshell justification is the active and passive obedience of christ in his accomplished redemption to uh, uh, draw a people onto himself but not only to draw them but to declare them and impute to them his righteousness so it's a forensic and a legal declaration. It's not 
uh, an inherent or, or anything in dwelling within us in relation to righteous works or deeds, but it's what Christ done for his church. So he is both the, uh, so he is the just and the justifier of his people and his people therefore shall live by faith is what it says in Romans. So basically justification is a legal and forensic declaration of, of the active and passive obedience of Christ and to atone for our sin and reconcile us before God. Yeah, and you you used that just as if I never sinned, and I've heard Michael Horton say that that's only half of it, just as if I've never sinned and as if I've obeyed the law perfectly, which you really tied into that when you were talking about the obedience. So where does sanctification fit in? And, you know, for, for people who don't know what we're talking about when we say sanctification, what what is sanctification and where does this fit in? Does it fit into our justification? How does how does this all work together? We see the problem is that um, whenever we look at sanctification, um, we see that in the New Testament, hagios, and you know it means to be set apart. And um, some people have taken that word quite literally, and they just assign it to a setting apart, nothing else. So they near try to make it legal, like and forensic, like justification as opposed to understanding that what God set apart, he also makes holy. And uh, so um, it has uh, not just a setting apart, but in this context, there's also a, a, a work to be made holy, to be made like him, to be conformed to his image and his likeness. And like we, we see that like God in himself is holy. And, um, you know, he, is, he cannot be corrupted and uh, he he is a creator and everything that reveals him has been set apart for his purpose and to bring about glory to his name and um like you get to see with isaiah you know holy 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 is the lord god almighty so he comes before the lord and he's undone and he is and he's exposed and he's barren he's full of despair he can't look up and I, what i love about this is he he he, he turns around and he says that you know about his his lips being unclean, you know, and um, I think that's very, very important to understand being before the Lord, that you know that nothing within you is clean, but everything about him is clean. So really all you receive of the Lord is what is holy. We know that when we are before God's holiness, that we are barren, that we're exposed, that we are undone. But whenever, because of the fact that uh, God in his mercy and through his grace reveals this work of redemption where he set apart a creation that he called good. And when they fell and were corrupted, he therefore not only provided the way for them, but also the means to not only set them apart, but to bring them to the, the standard in which he had set forth in himself and all of that was through christ yeah and you had talked in the in the beginning it's not just the setting apart but it's also what the lord is doing in our lives and i i love what the westminster shorter catechism says about sanctification sanctification is a work of god's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after 
the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and live into righteousness. But really the focus, even in the Westminster Catechism there, is on the work that God is doing within us in sanctification. It's not on what we're doing, but what on what God is doing. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think like uh, Louis Burkhoff says uh, that the Hebrew and the Greek word for holy is primarily to present separation and secondary to moral transformation. And uh, A.H. Hodge says that being made physically clean is the primary motive, and then uh, morally. And like um, when you look right throughout uh, anything that God does, he declares it holy, legally. You know, like uh, in relation to our sanctification, definitively we have been set apart, you are sanctified. So you can't get any more holier than that. You can't. But the progressive nature in relation to sanctification is where a lot of this dispute comes from and where these people start to argue. They seem to neglect what God shows the whole way throughout history, biblical and redemptive history, is not only him primarily setting apart something, but then secondarily uh, presenting a, a form of, of moral ethics that brings it into conformity to what it's been set apart for. So, like, whilst um, uh, there is no doubt a lot of confusion about the doctrine of sanctification, to solely isolate the word and to mean nothing more than set apart is in of itself uh, error. It is. But, um, like, uh, you just said there when you read from what is sanctification, and um, I also love in question 33, of the Shorter Catechism, 34 and 35, we get to see that it is justification is an act of God's free grace. What is adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace. And what is sanctification? Uh, sanctification is the work of God's free grace. And I think what a lot of synergists don't seem to realize is that free grace is free grace. It's not something that we do. It's something yes, that yes. God does. And when you look at justification, that we have been forensically imputed with the righteousness of Christ. So we stand before him acquitted of our sins as if we never sinned. That, that is a, an act of grace that we could never fully comprehend. And that, I think in a lot of respects, that's why we keep gravitating to legalism, because sometimes it's so hard to understand how a just God could turn around and offer such amazing grace. But then when you look at adoption, which is the highest privilege of the gospel, and you see our union with Christ because of everything that Christ has done for us, and yet the Bible still says that this is an act of free grace. You know, when it's an act of free grace and it's revealing the beauty and the splendor of God in and of himself, it's a transcendent beauty. It's, it's a holiness that we cannot understand. But also it was a sacrifice that should have been ours. And when that was legally imputed to us, and then therefore when we receive the benefits of our justification, which would be the duplex benefit, which is the double benefit of Christ, the sanctification, the you are holy, and we receive the Holy Spirit, then therefore we can see this work of God's free grace. Free grace is not something that we muster up and within ourselves, but rather all we do is like Isaiah, be thankful for everything that we have received. 
It's like when King David uh, cried out to the Lord, he says, remove from me the way of lying and grant me thy law gracefully. Like there's the King uh, David who has went through more moral fa failure than most people in a lifetime. And yet he could see the necessity of understanding God's grace, but yet his gratitude to God's law because of such grace, as opposed to presenting some form of synergism in and of himself. One of the big issues, even in our own reform circles, of course, outside of our reform circles too, but even unfortunately we're seeing it within our reform circles and that's this confusion of justification and sanctification. So can you talk a little bit about understanding justification and sanctification and distinguishing between them and why that's important? Well, I think um, Michael Horton here says, he says, if sanctification is confused with justification, it will lose the tension, the reality, and the rigor necessary for the battles of the Christian life. If justification is confused with sanctification, the product will be of no redemptive value. Therefore, we must clearly distinguish conversion from justification and realize the initial conversion is a passive reception of God's gracious acceptance of us in Christ, whilst the lifelong conversion process is an active pursuit of holiness and righteousness, the very thing that the gospel promises that we already possess fully and completely in Christ. And I, I think that the, the confusion is that when you present uh, justification as um, like Rome does in say two stages, and we get to see this a lot, um, like Rome would present justification uh, as uh, say by their baptism is like one stage, and then there's a future stage in, in relation to final judgment. So the final judgment stage of their justification uh, is by their works and you know upholding the sacraments and, and by their piety, basically. Now, unfortunately, that uh, mentality of a two-stage justification has filtered into the Reformed Church, and especially amongst evangelicals. And we, we sometimes try to... Uh, say that, oh, well, hold on now, he's a Lutheran, so he he's, he believes what we believe more or less, or he's a Baptist, so he believes what we believe more or less. And there's this sort of unity amongst us. But as I said at the start, the devil's in the details. And unfortunately, when justification starts to become an infusing of righteousness, or as in a, a meritorious uh, basis to our, to our salvation, then we are completely confused about what justification is. Justification is the ground and the basis to our salvation by Christ's accomplished redemption. There is no other basis to our salvation but what Christ accomplished for us. And we see that very clearly in uh, Romans 3.24. And it says, And are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. You see, we are redeemed by what Christ accomplished for us, not what we do in and of ourselves. And John Murray uh, picked up on this wonderful distinction between redemption accomplished and redemption applied. And unfortunately, too many people confuse the applied aspect of, of the justified life 
Um, and I mean that by in relation if you're looking at an active and passive justification, or if you wanted to say it probably would be more theologically correct, would be uh, objective and subjective justification. Objective justification is by what Christ accomplished. Subjective justification is where we would see by faith. So it's the faith aspect of laying a hold of or apprehending the, 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 the work of Christ alone. So when we read that the just shall live by faith or that you're justified by faith, and whilst we know that faith in itself is a noun, and it's like an open hand, an empty hand that lays a hold of everything of Christ, that apprehends all of Christ, and it is the means and instrumental cause of our justification. In and of itself, faith does not justify us. Rather, it takes a hold of Christ who justifies us by his active and passive obedience. So there is an objectivity to justification and a subjectivity to justification. Now, amongst reformers, there's a little bit of a, a, a battle going on <laughs> in relation to this teaching. And um, I, I don't want to open that up at the minute. But to get back to your question, why is sanctification being confused with justification and justification being confused with sanctification? Basically, it is boiling down to the error of Romanism, a two-stage justification where we're not accepting what the Bible says and that, like when in 1 Corinthians 15, it says that unless you believe in vain, where you're not apprehending what Christ has accomplished for you, and you're believing in vain, therefore you are losing the benefit and the assurance of what Christ has purchased for you on your behalf. So when justification is no longer the ground of your salvation and becomes either the means or the fruit of your, of your salvation, you have got a wrong view of justification. And it's a two-stage justification. And I don't mean to uh, go on to record and publicly condemn anyone, and I'm not trying to, but we're seeing even the likes of John Piper confuse this and confuse yep. it in ways that is presenting neo-nomianism, bringing new laws into the gospel, a gospel, I think is what Horton and others would call it, and they're collapsing the covenants they are. They're infusing them into one, presenting a dispensational hermeneutic and having that we're justified by Christ but our assurance is dependent on our good works and necessary to attain our glorification, which is a complete contradiction to Scripture. And not only even Piper, but we have we have people who claim to be confessional and reformed who are. We had even a Presbyterian pastor who defended Piper's view, where in one article where he kind of says that works are necessary to attain heaven. Yeah, the works of Christ. Yes, he says our works are. And yeah. you said something else, too, that I think is important. And you talked about our ground for assurance and our works. And we see this so often where our works, where we're told to look at our own works as our ground for assurance. And I love something R. Scott Clark says. He says, while our good works may strengthen our assurance, Christ alone is the ground of our assurance. Exactly. And I think that's really important because I think that's where that's where this really comes out in a practical way that is affecting many people. I it's something I hear from women about. You know, I just I don't know if I'm saved because I I still struggle with all of these sins. 
And they've been told that they're supposed to look to themselves for their assurance, to their own good works for their assurance. Well, you see, um, a big part of understanding justification is, is, is that it's uh, definitive. You know, it's something outside of you for you. And um, it's something that's complete. It's eschatological. It is. Um, the, the problem is with an incomplete concept of justification means then that you start to view justification wrongly because you see it as what, right, I'm justified by grace, but now I need to show good works to prove that I'm a, a Christian and therefore it's on the basis of my great good works that um, I, working with Christ, uh, attain uh, heaven. And that is complete contradiction to what we read earlier in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. If it's a work of God's free grace and obedience is not uh, to the law, but by grace. You see, I don't think that the grasp 2 Corinthians 5, where it says that we are constrained by love. The love of Christ is what constrains us. And therefore, we do good works. And you see, when you understand guilt, as in that you're fallen completely helpless, totally depraved, without any ability to redeem yourself, and then you uh, apprehend such grace by what Christ has accomplished in your behalf, all you can ever showcase after that moment forth is gratitude and thankfulness. And that's what we do. You know, when everybody wants to know, but what do we do? It sounds too easy. It's antinomian. No, it's not. Because a life that is constrained by love will be thankful and obedient to God's moral law. will turn around and see what pleases God. Like gratitude is amazing. In Romans one twenty one, it says, Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful. Now, when you know God, when you've received this grace, by faith and you've apprehended him you know him as god and how do we know him as god we know him as god through the scriptures because you're sanctified by the holy spirit onto the truth and what's revealed in god's word so we know him through the scriptures we get to understand these cradle imperatives of knowing god and knowing self we get to see like paul singing of himself in romans 7 wretched man am i why do i do the things i don't want to do you know still behaviorally a sinner but then we get to see uh, the other side of God where he has uh, definitively, definitively set us apart, sanctified us, called us holy, said we belong to him. We can come before him and pray our Father in heaven. That, that, that is where we then see this gratitude, this gratefulness, this thankfulness, this fruit of the Spirit. But that is not the basis or the means of our salvation. Our salvation becomes by works. Or you're adding law imperatives into grace to establish and maintain your salvation, which is not what Scripture says. Scripture completely uh, condemns that teaching. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is absolutely, fundamentally clear. You are saved by grace through faith. Alone. And when you add imperative to it, you're bringing Romanism and a two-stage justification back into the gospel. And you're all you're doing is heaping coals and and stones on the people's heads. You're crushing the conscience of the weak. And that is not what the gospel is about. The gospel is about liberation and freedom in Christ. 
It is about lifting the downcast. It is about showing the gracious nature of our Lord and Savior. It's about proclaiming the objectivity of Christ's accomplished redemption. And it's about us being full of thankfulness and gratitude to his word, constrained by love and just basically going around telling everybody, Jesus says, if you love me, you will do what? My commandments. And like, it's very simple. Love is what motivates you to be obedient. And even though we know in this life we can never be fully obedient, we know that we serve a merciful God, a loving Savior who died for us. And not only did he die for us and suffer the sinner's death, but he rose glorious for us. And he now mediates on our behalf. And we can come before him. We can pray to him. We can confess our sins. And he is faithful and just. We are not sitting there petrified in case I don't repent of a sin before I get hit by a bus and end up tormented in hell. I am not fixated on my works. A true believer is fixated on the work of Christ and therefore flows gratitude out of his life and thankfulness and obedience. The only other thing I'd like to just talk about just briefly, because I would love to have you on again to maybe get a little bit deeper into these things. But what... And I think you kind of already touched on this, but what are what are some of the things that we're seeing in our circles, which really are confusing justification and sanctification? You know, how can we recognize some of those things? I and mean, what are some of the things? I know we have federal vision, for instance, in the reform side, but how exactly does that differ from what we're talking about? Right. Well, basically. Um, when we see that that you must add an imperative in order to maintain or prove your salvation, right? Then you're you're bringing in a two-stage justification. It's as simple as that. You can try to work it out any other way you want, but that's basically what you're doing. You're adding to what uh, Christ's accomplished redemption. You're saying that I must. There must be a threatening. There must be a, a, a condition. And faith doesn't is no longer instrumental, but now is a, a condition which must be met by the will of man. Now, unfortunately, uh, we get to see this Roman influence uh, creeping its way in with federal vision, as you said. But um, what we're also seeing is it creeping its way in in relation to assurance, and um, because insurance to our our faith is not based on. Uh, the work of Christ alone, you know, because the sin of one, which was Adam, you know, was reconciled by the sin of the second Adam. So it either is or isn't. And if Christ hasn't satisfied for all sin and acquitted us legally and declared us righteous as if we never sinned, that's an aspect of justification people just don't seem to get. Before the Father, you stand as if you never sinned, ever. That's grace. People don't get that. You're standing dressed in the righteousness of Christ. You are acquitted of your guilt completely. That's why whenever we're glorified, it says that like within a blink of an eye, we'll be glorified. You know, it'll not be some sort of, you know, court case there. Come on now, let's go down the list here, you know, to see whether we glorify this person. It's in an instant because it's the work of Christ which causes our glorification what's caused our sanctification, our justification. It's his benefit, not our own. And our gratitude and thankfulness is only the fruit which reveal in the work of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God in our lives. But still, these, this two-stage justification is, is, is what is causing this problem 
And basically, like we're getting to see uh, these neo-nomian tendencies, and it's a dispensational hermeneutic, and it's really creeping in because they're not putting the gospel uh, as in its objective work. They're not presenting the right distinctions. They keep adding works and merit to it that it, we must do something in order to attain. Now, the, the, there's a problem within the Reformed uh, confessional church uh, in relation to sanctification because some of them just see it synergistic. They see it as in that, right, well, we can't be uh, passive in this. And because we can't be passive, therefore our cooperation is needed in order for us to be sanctified. And the Confessions does not support that teaching. It says the work of God's free grace. You see, sanctification is Trinitarian. Um, legally, and uh, we are, 1 Corinthians 1.30, we are sanctified. We are legally declared set apart because of what Christ has done for us. So, you know, there is that forensic side of it. But then there's then the progressive nature to it, where the work of the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us in, in, in the word of truth, progressively and conforming us into the image and likeness of God, which goes right back to how I defined what sanctification means. And whilst we know that in ourselves there is no righteousness, like we are sinful behaviorally, and, and even our thought process reveals that, we know that progressively what the Spirit is doing in us uh, through grace is teaching us in the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. So we get to see positionally that we're sanctified, justified. We see the duplex beneficium of Christ, the double benefit of Christ. But behaviorally, we see that we're still sinners. And why do we do the things we don't want to do? But we don't go on sinning that grace may abound. But rather in union with Christ and out of gratitude and thankfulness, we uphold the word of God. So the synergists out there just can't accept that. They feel that they need to give something back. And John Calvin said wonderfully presented this analogy of the sun and the heat that comes from the sun. And whilst it's always joined and it's always together, they are yet distinct. So the light that comes down says our justification which covers us. But the heat doesn't just cover you. It also infuses within you. And basically, that's like our sanctification, because we have received the Holy Spirit. We've been infused by the Holy Spirit. But as the Holy Spirit is working out of us, it is by faith, bringing us right up and laying a hold of everything of Christ. And therefore, that, that uh, work of, of sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, uh, renewing us through the Word of God, conforming us to the image of, the, of Christ, is, is uh, completely a monergistic work. And some in the Reformed Church don't like that word. They think it's too bold, but it's not. Sanctification is monergistic. It is a work of the triune Godhead. It is not solely a work of Christ alone, as in 1 Corinthians 1.30, but it is also a work to the glory of God alone, where the triunity of God is working in union with one another to bring about what is the will of the Father and his good pleasure. And that's what the scripture tells us. But the synergist has to try and infuse back into the heat. So I asked a simple question. Can you add heat to heat? No. So you cannot be synergistic or cooperate or cooperative in, in relation to 
adding to your sanctification. But what you can do is that you can reflect it. You can reveal it. You can uh, showcase the fruit of it by, by being obedient. Our obedience is the fruit of what we have received. It is not the ground or the basis of it. But and that's in relation to the Reformed Confessional Synergists um, who are adding a, a two-stage justification. And, uh, but in relation to the sovereign grace, no grace people out there, and when I say that is because they really don't seem to realize, they think that, you know, no, Christ is my sanctification. And you, you, sir, the, you know, the fair use of the law to them is heretical and anybody that believes it is a, is, is a, a false believer or a Lord shipper. <laughs> I, right. I, I completely uh, disagree with the concept of Lordship salvation. I think it, it is absolutely a dispensational hermeneutic device by uh, dispensationalists, sort of five-point evangelical Calvinists fighting with free willers. And that's the truth, all dispensational. Where Lordship salvation, uh, and if you looked at the confessions, we don't make Christ nothing. He is who he says he is. He does this work. We declare him. You know, Dr. Thomas turned around and he said, my Lord, my God. You know, like he didn't turn around and make him anything. He declared him, declared him at a cost that would have been stoned to death in that in, the, in that time. But no, he declared him, my Lord, my God. You know, like whenever you see people who are promoting lordship salvation, I just look at them like Dunton Thomas before he Christ revealed himself. And I don't mean that that they're not Christians, but I just mean they're doubting that they still seem to think that they need to do something to prove something. And, and that, that is a completely wrong concept of, of what we believe in by justification and sanctification. But the, the sovereign grace guys, they see this legal forensic uh, work alone. And they look at faith as a gift as well. So whenever it comes to piety, in, in some respects, they're actually closer to the truth than some of the reformers who are abusing this. But, in, but they're really, really condemning. I wrote down a couple of quotes from one of these guys that I'm going to read to you. And you tell me now if this isn't adding imperatives to the gospel, okay? So here's what he says. Doctrines of morals. All genuine believers strive and struggle to obey these commandments and do so at varying levels of success and obedience to it. It is an error to mix up the doctrine of sanctification with the doctrine of morals. Okay. So that's one of his quotes. Here's another quote. The Lord opens the mind of the elect and makes them understand scriptures. Scriptures does not teach this, is evidenced by the, by the elect's excellent behavior. Such an addition in scripture violates hermeneutics. So now here's his conclusion. Only when one believes all and whatever scripture says as truth is qualified for salvaic faith. How do you hear that? So he's just, he's just damned anybody who adds any synergism. Okay. Now here's his conclusion. Only when one believes all and whatever scripture says as truth is qualified for salvaic faith. 
And then he quotes Second uh, uh, Corinthians. He says, examine yourself, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves. Know that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. And uh, he goes on to say that, this is another illustration he uses. When a Christian who once got sloshed, that obviously means drunk, and beat up his wife and children, now does not get drunk and harm his family anymore, must not imagine he has become more like Christ. So basically what he's saying is, right, in order to be saved, you have to qualify by your belief system. Perfect doctrine. But perfect doctrine, according to him, is what he believes, right? What they believe. And that's what qualifies your faith. So perfect, perfect doctrine qualifies faith. That is Gnosticism. It is. You know, I, it's neo-Gnostic without a shadow of a doubt. So he's trying to say, like, if we look at the forensic nature of, of what Christ has accomplished, there's nothing Gnostic about it. It's a work of God. It's a legal work outside of us for us. But when we look at how we apprehend it, you don't isolate that to sheer Gnosticism. You don't, you know, the faith which apprehends Christ is by grace and we grow in the knowledge of grace. That's what scripture says. You grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. So if it's progressive and you're growing in grace and knowledge, how on all the earth is it absolute to have perfect doctrine in order to prove you're a believer? And by the way, if a person who's a Christian beats the daylights out of his wife, and no longer stops beating the daylights out of his wife, that is absolutely no ground to assure him that he's a Christian. Do you ever hear such nonsense in all your life? And unfortunately, that's what these guys are pumping all over the internet and damning and condemning everybody. So on one hand, we have Gnostics and lunatics uh, promoting grace as some sort of you know, license to do whatever you want. And that's really what they're saying. They're trying to say that, you know, we're not promoting disobedience, but when they write conclusions like that, what else are they promoting? So you're to have no assurance whatsoever in what the fact that Spirit is doing through you and in you and, and your knowledge of Christ. That's to bring you no assurance. That's a complete contradiction to what I read earlier. And the, the problem is that, as I say, and it boils down to a root problem with justification, is that when justification is not the basis and the ground of your salvation, and faith is not the instrumental cause which apprehends it, the noun with an open hand that takes all of Christ, and obedience is the work of the Holy Spirit working in us, and the fruit which stems forth because of that, then you end up with legalism. Uh, uh, neonomianism, infusing law imperatives into the law, you end up with antinomianism, where they're denying the law and uh, uh, pleasing God in any way possible, but it ultimately, in their antinomianism, leads them to neonomianism because of their Gnostic behavior, because they're qualifying faith on the basis of their knowledge rather than the basis of Christ's obedience and redemption. I'm glad you brought up both sides of of the error that we see. We see the the antinomians, we see the neonomians, and and both are error. And also what you said about the antinomians end up making the neonomian error because they add something to what is necessary. And if if my audience hasn't run into them, there there are 
some neo-Gnostic Calvinists, and they believe that that believing in the five points of Calvinism, and they really emphasize um, particular redemption, is necessary for salvation. And if you do not agree with them on that, they do not believe that you are a Christian. In fact, most of them don't even believe Calvin was a Christian. Because... Yeah, they, actually, they condemn Calvin as well. They condemn Calvin, they condemn the, the Senate of Dort, even though that's where they're taking their teaching from. It's the most ignorant doctrine. But then again, they're, sorry, I've meant to say they're all Baptists, by the way, and the Reformation wasn't necessary. So this is what I'm hearing from some of these Baptists. Now, and I once was a Baptist. So like, I, I am absolutely shocked by that. The Reformation wasn't necessary because there was an elect group of Baptists right throughout church history that was always preaching the truth. Another thing that um, I wanted to mention too, and that is I always like to encourage my audience in further study. And I hadn't even asked you this before, but you had told me back a while ago, you had recommended to me a book by Walter Marshall, The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification. I'll link it on there. Is are there any other things that you would recommend on this? Yeah, there's a book by Reverend David J. Engslema, Be Holy, and um, it's on the Reformed Doctrine of Sanctification. Um, I have shared the PDF, and um, I will also uh, I will send you links of books and stuff okay. that I recommend as well. Also, the articles by R. Scott Clark and um, any of the ministry of R. Scott Clark, basically, in relation to sanctification and justification is uh, exceptional. Um, there's, uh, yeah, the Gospel Mystery of Sanctification, um, that wonderful book, it really is. Um, what else? So some really good articles out there as well, on it as well. I, I, I'll send you a link to a whole load of stuff. Okay. Yeah, R. Scott Clark does a lot with some of those errors that, you know, talks a lot about these errors that we've talked about. Oh, and I, you know, one thing I wanted to say too, because you briefly touched on Lordship Salvation, I'm glad that you mentioned that it really is built on a dispensational hermeneutic. And I think some people who have been, who only know Lordship Salvation and antinomianism assume if you don't believe in Lordship Salvation, you believe you're an antinomian. And that is not the case. That is not what we're saying at all. We're saying that it is it doesn't fit into Reformed theology. It's not necessary within Reformed theology. And I'll recommend a wonderful book, Christ the Lord, The Reformation of Lordship Salvation, edited by Michael Horton. It's an excellent book. And I think one thing we didn't get into, but maybe we can when we have you on again, and that is The Confusion of Law and Gospel, because this yeah. that fits right into what we're talking about right here. And that's that's a problem with Lordship Salvation, you know. I put it, I wrote this here down the other day. The law is our guide by the Spirit and our directive through the Word of God. And we don't grow in, in, in grace. Or we, our obedience doesn't stem forth by law. We say that Romans 10, very, 10 verse 4 is very, very clear on that. But um, faith apprehends all of Christ. And basically the gratitude that stems forth, the being constrained by the love of God, is what leads to obedience. But you see, we we know what pleases God for his law. And we see his law and his moral character, and we see the character of God. It reveals God, the law does. How, you tell me how the antinomian can say that he loves the law of God. Don't. They don't. And I've had antinomians say it to me. They say, why would I love the law of God? I says, well, you don't agree with David then. I said, well, like when David said, remove me the way of lying and grant me thy law gracefully. I says, how does the law ever become gracious? So you're saying that scripture is unfulfilled in Christ? 
So they, they just don't seem to be able to... See, that's where the problem with dispensationalism, there's no continuity through the scripture. Scripture isn't interpreting scripture. They're not looking through a, a covenantial hermeneutic. They're looking through uh, an infusing of law and gospel, uh, go gospel hermeneutic, to get to see in the Sermon of the Mount the threatenings of the gospel. You know what I mean? Like uh, They look at when you're called to obey the gospel rather than understand that uh, that when you look at the Greek and, and the meaning of that word is a listening to, an apprehending, a listening to, or an apprehending is to take a hold of it. So you're listening to, and by faith you take a hold of, you obey the gospel as in, it's not as in an imperative, but it's an indicative. But everybody is commanded to repent because we are all sinners, fall short of the glory of God. Every single person has to stand before the Lord. So if you don't stand in the righteousness of Christ alone and you stand in your own self-righteousness, well, then basically there's only one place for you. And But the simple fact is whenever these antinomians, as we call them, uh, they, some of them are, are, are the most... Like they say John Calvin wasn't a Christian because he murdered someone. If they don't understand the history or they just seem to hear it on the internet and then they make it up as they go along. You know, like it's, it is the height of sheer ignorance. It really is. I've become a little bit ungraceful towards them of late because I've, I've sort of just got tired of their constant attacking. And you would write something up and say to them, look, look at what I've wrote here and show me where I'm wrong. And they can't. So then they just start making it up and calling you names. So, like, to be honest, because I came from that background myself and have made errors like they have made, I, I, I persevere with them. I, I try to strive to help them know, look, please look at this. You're, you're, you're being taught wrongly about the Reformation. I was told that reformers didn't believe in the act of obedience of Christ uh, in relation to our justification confessionally. And that's what stopped me uh, taking on board a confessional stance for about two years because I thought they didn't understand justification properly. And that's where they were confusing sanctification and ending up synergists. And it was a complete lie from hell. It wasn't even truth. As I said, the devil's in the detail. And unless you look at the detail, you're going to sometimes take upon other people's positions because they said so. And really, rather than seeking it out for yourself, you know, to be a student of the word of God means you have to be submissive to it. You have to have your precepts challenged and you have to be prepared to look at your presuppositions and see if they align with scripture. And if they don't, correct them. I went from credo to pedo-baptist, so I know exactly what that means. That was the hardest thing I ever to do in my life. I'm not joking yet. You can ask John Vonville. I battled for about two years over it, and um, until all of a sudden, whenever I seen it, covenantially, and started to understand the promises of God, and seen the sovereign work in it, and seen the, as Augustine said, a visible form of an invisible grace, Therefore, I could see it all of grace. And I wasn't seeing baptism no longer as some form of synergism, uh, obedience to God, where it's my baptism. I was seeing it now that it was Christ's baptism, his way of marking, saying a sign and a seal of the things signified by what Christ accomplished, and therefore a promise for my children and my household to the praise of his glory. So it takes, it takes you to be prepared to be a student of the word, to have your precepts challenged, and also to not be offended because it doesn't fit into your framework. Sometimes if your system of theology is wrong, you have to reevaluate it. 
I've went from dispensational to confidential, from credo to pedo. From you know, I, I my my theology has, has has grown immensely over the course of thirteen years. If I was to deny that and deny everyone who believes stuff different to me as being justified, I, I would be a pig. One reason why we exist is to encourage our listeners to be in the Word of God, to be studying the Word of God, not to just believe whatever internet people that you read, but to be in the Word of God. And, and you know, it's a reason why we include resources, too, to encourage people in study. And I have to tell you, the baptism one, that was the hardest one for me, too. I was the most diehard credo baptist i was never ever going to be a pedo baptist and <laughs> I, I was in fact i was really on a mission to prove that my pedo friends were completely wrong <laughs> and about three years of study it took my husband a little longer he studied it diligently for seven years i know that sounds crazy i think he read every single book available on both sides he talked to pastors on both sides and and it was like you, one day it just clicked and the same thing with me. You know, one day it's hard to even explain, you know, and you see it. So I'm grateful for that. And I have a lot of listeners who don't understand that part. And I do want to actually say also, if you haven't listened to our episode on covenant theology, I will link it in the notes with um, Dr. R. Scott Clark, listen to that because we talk about this and I know there's a lot of misunderstandings about that too. Well, Gary, thank you so much for coming on. You've just given so much wonderful information for us to consider and to, and to study. And I will link any resources that you send me, you know, so people can continue to study this and understand this. Because I think this is really an incredibly important topic. It really is one of the most important topics that we're dealing with right now is understanding justification and sanctification. And one of the things that we're seeing so much error on. So thank you, Gary, and we will be right back. You're welcome. If you want to be a radical Christian, then you need to go to New Jersey. Not because going to New Jersey is all that, well, it's a little bit radical, but you will be a radical Christian if you attend the 10th anniversary of the Striving for Eternity conference called Jersey Fire. What makes it so radical? The preaching on the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God, the wrath of God, the mercy of God, the truth of God, the creator God. Why all that head knowledge? So that you can hit the streets with seasoned evangelists and actually apply the theology you learned. That is what makes this conference so radical. If you would like to learn a lot about God and then actually tell people about God, July 7th through the 8th, Tom's River, New Jersey, jerseyfire.org, jerseyfire.org. This podcast is a member of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. All right, welcome everybody to another podcast episode with Semper Reformanda Radio. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. Welcome everyone to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. Well, welcome to the School of Biblical Harmonetics. Welcome everybody to Grappling with Theology. What is going on, guys? Shine as lights coming at you. Well, welcome to Slick Answers. Good evening and welcome to the Conversations from the port. This is the Council of Google Plus. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Bible Thumping Wingnut Podcast. 
Laughing Grace Radio. The Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Ten podcasts, one network. Check them out. BibleThumpingWingnut.com. Hi, this is Colleen, and I wanted to mention a few things. First of all, we have a lot of resources for this episode. Gary was just very gracious in putting together quite an extensive list of resources. So you can find those and everything I'm about to talk about. If you go to BibleThumpingWingnut.com, click on Theology Gals. There's a couple places where you can find us on there. And click on this episode and you will have links to all of the resources. Included in those resources are a couple of free ebooks. One of the books that I mentioned in the episode that Gary had recommended to me was a book called The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification, and that is one of the free ebooks that is available. And there's just a lot of other books. He also put together sections in several different books and, you know, systematic theologies and those sorts of things. And you may have some of those at home. So that was, I think, also very helpful. I, I also linked on there a few weeks ago or a couple weeks ago. I'm not exactly sure how long ago it was. The network did something called Clash of the Theologies because the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network has some different theologies represented as far as we've got some dispensationalists and New Covenant theology and Reformed Baptists and then Ashley and I kind of represent the Reformed and Presbyterian side. We take a subject and then it's not a debate, it's just kind of a discussion where we talk about some of our differences, what our view is, and we actually did sanctification a, a couple weeks ago. So it's really not, even though it's a fairly long episode, it's not especially thorough. It's really an introduction to the different views that um, each of us have. And I actually want to mention some of the other podcasts right now. I tend to mention the same couple, and as always, I do want to recommend Bible Thumping Wingnut that you listen to them, but there are, what, 10 or 11 podcasts on the network, and I couldn't even tell you what all of them are off the top of my head, but we have Shyness Lights, that's one you should check out, and Council of Google Plus, check them out. I did a little recording the other night with John from Council of Google Plus, and he mentioned a series that they're going to be releasing. I'm not sure if it's released yet, but definitely check them out because they do tackle some interesting topics and they're a lot of fun to listen to. And there also is Conversations from the Port if you're an NCT person. I don't know if I have very many NCT listeners, but that would be what they are. And, you know, maybe I will start featuring one of the podcasts each week and telling a little bit more, you know, what they're about. Bible Thumping Wingnut, for instance, does a lot of apologetic stuff. Oh, another one that I think many of you would be interested in, that's Slick Answers, and that's Andrew Rappaport with Matt Slick. And Matt Slick just has a wealth of information on apologetics. So I definitely recommend that you check them out also. Sanctification, especially in reform circles, there has been some, I think they call them the sanctification wars or something like that. And there has been some disagreements on sanctification. And 
I'm thinking that this episode could spark some questions and I want to do a second episode on it and I want to answer any questions that any of you might have. So please email us at theologygals at gmail.com. You can text us. Our phone number is on the bottom of each episode. You can text us. You can um, call in and do a voice clip and you can also do this for our next question and answer episode. So please do that. I mean, if you have questions, write us, tell us. You can message me. You can hit me up on Facebook, you know, or other social media. But if you have any questions from this episode, please let us know so we can address those specifically on the next. There's just so much to tackle with this topic because there are a lot of errors. And we kind of got into some of those today, but we may want to kind of approach those a little bit more just take each error and explain what it is and why it is not consistent with scripture and so that's something that we're talking about doing then i also wanted to let you guys know that we have some pretty exciting episodes coming up we're going to be doing an episode on eternal subordination of the sun and if you don't know what that is definitely tune in eternal subordination of the sun has been a controversy especially in reform circles and I get messages with questions about it fairly often and so we are going to be having a guest on who's done a lot of writing on the subject so I'm excited about having this guest on and you know just talking about what it is because I know some people just are confused at what is it I don't know if I understand what it is and why it's an issue so definitely keep your ears open for that episode we're also going to be having a really great lady author on and she has written a book that I know several of the women in my group have said they just loved so much and so that's going to be a really good episode and we're also going to be doing an episode where we're going to talk a little bit about history and you know online there's some things that are just not factual Um, You know, if you're a Calvinist and you interact on social media, you've probably heard somebody say, Calvin's a murderer. So we're going to address that. Is he really a murderer? And but we're also going to talk about why it's important to get our history right. And why is history important? That's another thing that we need to tackle. We may do that in a couple of different episodes in different ways. So other than that, If you would like to support us, we don't have a lot of expenses, but we do have some, and there's some things that we would like to do. On on the website, again, there's a link to our Patreon account. If you want to sponsor us just even a few dollars a month, that would really be very helpful, and we're just grateful for the people that have sponsored us already. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us, and we will see you next week.